Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this session of the Sydney Writers' Festival. My name is Ashley Hay. It is my absolute pleasure to be talking with Gail Jones and Sophie Cunningham. For all of you this morning, um, these are two writers whose work I admire immensely. They're two people who I love. Um, and their two most recent books, Salonica Burning and This Devastating Fever, respectively, are both brilliant and powerful pieces of writing in their evocations of the past and their messages that they have for us in the present and in the future as well. Um, if that feels like a rather large way to come into the conversation, uh, I think we're in for a large conversation today. Um, and so before we do that, I would like to sit for a moment and acknowledge that this conversation is being held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd particularly like to acknowledge that it is taking place in the presence of millennia of stories that have been shared and exchanged. My own greatest respects to the elders, past, present and emerging of this place and welcome to any First Nations people who are with us um, and my great gratitude too for the care that has been taken and is still taken of this place on behalf of all of us who have the privilege to live here or work here or visit. Um, Sophie, Gail and I are going to talk towards the top of the hour. We're conscious that some of you will have events that you want to go to at 12 o'clock. Um, I'm conscious that I could probably talk to these two for about a week, so I could really fill in the time. Um, I will try and leave some space for your questions at the end. If I fail, please forgive me and you can catch up with both of them in the book signing queue after this event um, when they're signing their books for you. So let's set off together. Uh, we are going to go to lots of different places today. We are going to go to Sri Lanka when it was still known as Ceylon. We're going to go to Thessalonica when it was still known as Salonica. Uh, we're probably going to go to England. We might pop into Germany. Uh, we are going to span the earliest years of the 20th century through to the 21st. Um, we're aiming to go far. And before I introduce you to these two writers, I want to introduce you to some of the characters that we'll be talking about because I think there are some names here that you might have heard before. We're going to meet Leonard Wolfe, we're going to meet Virginia Woolf, we're going to meet Grace Palethorpe, Olive King, Stanley Spencer and Stella Franklin before she was known as Miles. And what Gail and Sophie have both done with their different characters and their different worlds and their different times, there's some crossover between the books, um, and the different moments of being is to take elements of a factual, of a historical past, and as Gail put it very elegantly in her acknowledgements for Salonica Burning, to take liberties with all of that. So we're going to talk about fiction, more than fact, and about imagination. I think we're going to talk about witness and care. So a large start again. Um, Gail, I wanted to start first of all with you this morning. Thank you so much for being here and for this absolutely beautiful book. Uh, and before we do talk about the liberties <laughs> that have been taken, I wanted to talk about the people at the heart of Salonica Burning. So we've got slivers of four lives here, um, Grace, Olive, Stanley and Stella, and you don't give them surnames to make clear that they're your people. Mm. I wanted to start by asking just to tell us a little bit about those four people and how you, how you first located them as a quartet. 
Um, okay, and um, thank you for coming. It's lovely to be here and to have um, someone of Ashley's caliber to talk to. Um, I originally began looking at only one figure, historical figure, Olive King. Uh, it was for a member of my family who was doing some family research, and Olive may or may not be a relly. And Olive is a, um, uh, was a kind of wealthy North Shore Sydney woman who uh, was an adventurer and ended up driving ambulances in the First World War. And she witnessed the burning down of Salonika, which she describes in letters to her father. Her father was a widower back in Sydney, and he was um, funding her attachment to the war. Uh, but when I... I was very interested in this particular figure, but with no sense that I would write a novel. But at a certain point, I decided to see who else might have been <laughs> in the vicinity of Salonika in 1917, um, a time at which, of course, there were two massive catastrophes coming into the same experiential space, which was the First World War and the burning of a, an important Ottoman Empire city. And I discovered, first of all, that Stella Miles Franklin was there. And she was already a writer. You know, as you know, she did My Brilliant Career at the Age of 16. Mm. was published when she was 19, under the name of Miles. So, uh, so Miles Franklin was there as an orderly um, in the Scottish Women's Hospital, a field hospital. And two, two painters were there, both of whom I knew about and who are very idiosyncratic mm. and strange people. And one is a woman called Grace Palethorpe, who was a Freudian analyst, a surrealist, and a surgeon. Um, and the other is Stanley Spencer, who's one of the great British modernists of the early 20th century. So when I had the, these four to think about in Constellation, as it were, it was very hard to resist. <laughs> constructing a narrative in which they would be adjacent but not necessarily knowing each other's lives. And certainly three of those women were working for the Scottish Women's Hospital, which was a hospital run by suffragettes, resourced by um, gathering in medicos from all around the British Commonwealth. And the hospital in Salonika was run by a woman from Queensland. It might have been one of the reasons that Miles Franklin was given a job there when she mm. had no conspicuous talents at all for <laughs> medical work. Um, so, so that, I mean, in short, that's the short, shorthand version that I found it irresistible to imagine what it must have been like. The, these spaces, these locations of war um, are often places where uh, people from many parts of the globe come together or many spaces of knowing and experiencing and that. That's how that began. I love, and I want to talk um, a little bit later about this, I love the, the sort of contrast between the massive destruction of war, which is this machine that's going on, and the, and the randomness of the fire. That's something that's mm. so palpable in the book. I want to come back to that, but I want to just bring the same uh, question to you now, Sophie, in terms of the beginning of the book, um, the beginning of this devastating fever, and to start by asking you, not just, or not only when you first came across Leonard Wolfe, but maybe more importantly, how you first began to imagine his potential in a new story that would sit in now as well. There was probably about 15 years between those two 
moments, <laughs> which is one reason why the book took a long time because I, I was fascinated from, with him from the moment. I, I went to Sri Lanka to do some other research and because he had lived there, I'd been told that his um, writings about Ceylon were really significant and so I read his diaries and a novel and he, I read his professional diaries and his personal diaries and I read his biographies and he kind of amazed me for a range of reasons that, that we might go on to talk about but also... I realised I'd known nothing about him. I'd known him being the, the husband of a mm-hmm. famous writer, but I hadn't really understood that he had this whole other life. And I was very interested in in lots of things about him and the way um, the way history had kind of claimed particular narratives for Leonard, for Virginia, and indeed the sense when he was in Salon, it was before World War One. Mm. it was at the end of the Victorian era and there was about 10 years there where things felt really exciting and like the world was was opening up and he was a young man and indeed Virginia was a young woman they're kind of having this life and um we're having seeing potential and then with World War One, it kind of all closed down and that and he actually said in his diaries when he the um, guns gunshot rang out in Sarajevo, I knew everything was going to change. And that his seeing that and his understanding that, and that, that was the um, assassination that that led to World War One. And um, it was reminding me very much of what it felt like to, on September 11, when you have a sense about the this is a moment where a pivotal moment in history and the Western world certainly is is going to be changed forever. And so I was kept being struck by the way he would write about moments 100 years ago that they still felt very pertinent, even the way he phrased them and the way he, he talked about them. So there was that. But I... Um, and so I just... I did start to write about very, his early years in Salon and the first couple of years of World War One, And... The research was fascinating, but I was having trouble letting go of the research and it made the material slightly wooden, if mm. you like, and I wasn't... Like sometimes you come up with a good idea for a book, but you do have to think about, why am I writing this book? <laughs> um, just because an idea is a good one doesn't mean it works, all those kind of things. And then <clears throat> during COVID, there was... Um, and I put the book aside again after the years of writing it. That was the first time in my life I'd really explicitly felt this is what it's like to live inside history. Like it, it, a moment that, you know, you, you, and that sense about, again, of the world. I mean, I've mentioned September 11, but this was much more dramatic. Mm. And I was walking across the Edinburgh Gardens, in fact, to the vac- get my first vaccination and a plane went overhead and I started to cry because it was a plane. And I suddenly thought, it just made me think about them and World War I mm. and the ways in which, what it feels like to live on the inside of these kind of really momentous historical changes. And that kind of gave me an emotional a way of connecting the material emotionally and kind of bringing it to life rather than it just feeling like, historical, because I really had to let the research go to some extent to, to write a book that was going to engage and, and make some of the other points I wanted to make. Just before we leave Leonard altogether, um, you've mentioned, you know, that what you knew about him in the first place was he was 
Mr. Virginia Woolf, mm. in a sense. Um, was he complicated by being that sort of automatic adjunct in most people's minds? Or was there a certain liberty or freedom or permission that came along with having that part of him, you know, that side of him etched out so definitely? Um, I didn't feel able to take... It took me a long time to feel able to take liberties, mm. I suppose, is a better way of answering that. There probably is a... But also he had been so written about and I inevitably started to write about him after he got together with Virginia mm. and, and people, readers and my own interest kept nudging me that it sort of went from 1907, now it goes to the current day. So it just sort of it became a bigger and bigger book, which meant I was having to write into um, parts of his life, like Caring for Virginia, where there's so much has been written and I just became this idea of being claimed by history. He was being written about as being an obnoxious patriarch and very controlling and very difficult. I'm not saying he was not those things sometimes, but I felt like there was a lot more to it, particularly what it's like to care for someone who mm. is so... It is very hard to, to care for someone who, who is suffering in the way that she did and... and um, he actually worked very hard to keep her out of institutions. I mean, there's a lot more you could say about all that. And I did think he was being... He was, they were both being claimed for political purposes. Mm. So he was being called a misogynist. Um, she was... There'd be different books about, about her mental health, about whether her sexuality, and everyone had views on them. And I just started to imagine these two people getting really irritated <laughs> by everyone's <laughs> views of them. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah. and the fact that they were their own selves who were complicated people, mm -hmm. but they just, they'd become so scrutinised that I kind of almost wanted to remove them from, from scrutiny, if, if you like. Yeah. Um, I, love, I want to come back particularly here to talk about care, but I love there's a scene in the book... Um, where it just runs through Leonard answering his correspondence. No, I won't talk to you about whether Virginia was a lesbian. Yes, you can call your play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yes. No, I don't have an opinion about, you know, just this lovely, you know, that was part of his sort of daily life. Well, because he does what is... One of the things that I was aware... I became aware was interesting. He lives... He lived to 1970. Mm. So he was part of a, a group that, um, say, was, a, you know adventurous sexually, for example, and then in the 60s, um, gay politics were becoming a thing and there was, um, or the right, you know, the, um, the, the fight to make it no, no longer a crime and all those things were happening. And he kept being asked about those things. Mm. And so it was sort of, he, he actually, and he was actually asked, what is it like to have a wife who is a lesbian? And he just would get very, I, um, I don't really have anything to say to that. So the fact that he had been, was being asked directly mm. about some of these things was interesting to me as well, the fact that he became an old man during the more modern era. Um, coming back to this idea of liberties, Gail, and the, and the liberties that Salonika Burning allowed you to take, I wanted to talk not just in terms of how you bring these four people together and how and the sort of common space that you create for them but also to ask if there were other creative freedoms that you found as a writer as this particular weaving of the book came into focus if there were different possibilities or permissions that were at play for you through these four um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm in awe of Sophie's research, actually, because mm. I have to confess I did very little research. I did too much, Gail. Um, we can talk about um, that. <laughs> I just... Um, but the, nature balances itself. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so one of my liberties was actually that I didn't know very much when I mm. began. There's, there hasn't been... Um, I, I mean, I, I was in a caring position and I had no access to libraries or books other than what I could order through the mail... Um, but I had the internet, and the internet has a great deal of information about the First World War on it. The British war archives are astonishing. Mm. And this Scottish Women's Hospital, I, I hadn't heard of the Scottish Women's Hospital. But when the war broke out, uh, women, especially suffragettes, offered their labour as medicos, believing that it would get them the vote. Mm. And nobody thought that the war would go on for four years. Uh, when they were refused, when the British Army wouldn't take on um, nurses, uh, a group of Scottish women set up their own hospital. And, but these were field hospitals. These were tents or, you know, in old chateaus and mm -hmm. so on. But mostly they were tent hospitals. There were 12 or 14 of them right across Europe. And I, I found it astonishing how much support there was for these women to work in this caring role uh, and and how little is known of some of the women. So there there is no biography of Grace Palethorpe, who is a really interesting woman. There is a biography of, of Stanley Spencer, of course. And I hadn't read then the biography of Miles Franklin, mm. which I since have. Uh, and and Olive, there was, there's just a, f a few letters, really. So, so I had the liberty of not having enough access and of, of a, a kind of space that I didn't know about in a place that I hadn't visited. It's the first time I've written about a place I haven't been to. Uh, and, you know, the traditional narrative history tries to construct a sort of sovereign or omniscient or authoritative explanation of why historical things happened a sort of unified uh, point of view. But one of the capacities of the novel and why the novel is so precious to us is that we can disperse and decenter witness and that we can inhabit um, the space not of authority but of bewilderment or confusion. Mm, yeah. And this is something, again, that Sophie's book is brilliant at doing, that it doesn't make... Uh, Leonard an authority on even on his own life or on Virginia's wife it admits that contingency and anxiety when you feel you're, you don't, you're not in control of your own meanings so for me some of that taking liberty was really the fact that I wasn't attempting in any way to write history mm -hmm. I was in t attempting to honour that interior experience of the encounter with war as a carer not as a combatant. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought how astonishing it would be to be a surgeon, for example, who goes to the front uh, and patches someone up so that they can go back mm. to the trenches to try to kill another person. And the, the, just the psychological torment of that, the, the kind of torsion is the metaphor that comes to mind, being wrenched between these two poles of being must have been extraordinary. There's something amazing that happens too in the, you know, you mentioned that Grace Palethorpe 
grace, your grace in the book too, is she is a surgeon, which is quite astonishing. Um, but she becomes a very early Freudian analyst mm. and, and a painter. But there's something amazing thinking about, as you say, the sort of psychological impact of the work that these women are doing, the coincidence of the beginning of the century, the beginning of psychoanalysis, you know, the beginning of the Freudian talking cure and the arrival of the, this great modern war. It's an amazing Mm, it's an amazing lineup of time. And what, what's the Virginia Woolf quote about modernity starts in 1910? On, on about December 1910. Yes, yes. The world changed. That the world changed. It's and just this. Quote. And Hugo um, Ball as well. I mean, Dart has had some quote about me yes. meaning has disappeared or mm. me yes. meaning has disintegrated. Right. I think that was in response to World War One. I'm not sure. Yes, anyway, it but was. It was, yeah. it was talking to. Sarah about, it was a Dadaist kind of yeah. pronouncement that made sense. Yeah. yeah. But I, th I think too, um, one of the things, and I love your note, Gail, that you're not writing history. The book for me was not just about writing these lesser known lives or this sort of lesser known experience of war, but also about the potential and the possibility of working with historical figures and working through historical moments to invent and imagine new things. Now, that feels to me like a pretty critical skill at the moment in terms of how we imagine remaking the world. Is there a different potency or relevance for this kind of revisiting and reworking of what we pigeonhole as history at the moment, do you think? Uh, mm, possibly. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, again, one of the conceptual freedoms that a novel affords is character, is mm. the idea of entering into the interior, that, that bewildered interior, that seeing the plane fly over when you're walking across the grass, feeling your precarity in a new moment in history. And uh, that was very important to me to try to preserve that. So where Sophie's book looks back from the present, mine has no present. It's all in, embedded in 1917. I don't tell the futures of these characters. I don't give any mm. sense of what will happen after 1917, that Grace will become a Freudian analyst. She was actually analyzed herself by Ernest Jones, who was Freud's biographer. So she was right in there. She spoke German. She read Freud in the original. Uh, so I didn't want to, as it were, encumber this precarious present with knowledge from the future. I, I remember once um, I was on a panel with Michael Cunningham. He'd just written The Hours, um, and, and he was talking about Walt Whitman, which would be the subject of his next mm. book. And I remember him, I was talking about Virginia Woolf on that panel. It was um, <laughs> one of these moments of convergence, but he said we have to remember that historical figures and indeed ourselves, we feel we're at the front of history and that if you're imagining the life of Walt Whitman or Virginia Woolf or indeed uh, Leonard, then, then there's a certain honour in allowing them to be at the front of their own history and that really, stru that really struck mm. me and stayed with me and that was my, one of the ways, <coughs> excuse me, one of the ways in which I was able to tackle for actual historical figures, but not make them history, make I, them exemplars of a certain kind of encounter. I was unable to let go of some of those knowings, and I remember mm. that was sort of something that happened 
say in um, when, when, when people were reading drafts, I would real I, I would kind of actually have flash forwards mm-hmm. because I didn't really know how to write it without. No, but it works. So, um, it works in your book. I mean, that I'm not making a judgment. Oh no, no, no. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't saying yeah. you were. But just different ways of coping with the same problem. Mm-hmm. So I know that you know. One of the things that really stuck with me in the when I was researching this, in the context of Virginia Woolf's death, was understanding that if you lived in Sussex, you really thought that the Germans were probably going to get across mm. the Channel. Mm. Virginia, Leonard was a, a Jewish man, therefore Virginia was Jewish. They were on death lists. They had, they, people had cyanide by their bed, not just mm. the Woolf's, everyone, and were discussing taking mm. their own lives, should the Germans, every day for some months. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting way to think about her decision to die that what didn't just reduce her to a victim of mm. mental illness. Mm. And, and also that there was a very different context to those events. But it was also the use of cyanide. And mm. they also, in, in, in Salon, or the, the Halley's Comet in 1909, I think, um, it was a bit like Y2K, but back then it was like they were going to, um, the world was going to fall into the comet's tail and mm. die in a ball of cyanide. And so every time there was a reference to cyanide, I did find myself thinking about fascism and, and, and the camps. And I actually found the book hard to write because I never knew how to stop my mind spinning off to following the resonances of particular words, mm-hmm. if you like. Yeah. And, and so it was very hard yeah. to kind of contain it because yes. I didn't know how to keep in the moment. And, and we tend I wish I'd been able to. Sorry, uh, we tend to forget, I think, that the First World War did invade the UK. I mean, the first bombing in London, the Zeppelins, five mm. Zeppelins bombed London mm. in 1914, you know, within months of the war beginning. And they bombed the theatre district around Charing Cross. Uh, the Lyceum Theatre went up in flames and lots of people died. And, and, there was that, and I know that novelists are quite attracted to oddity and to these sort of icons, as it were, of the historical moment. Well, Virginia and writes for me, about it those Zeppelins. The Zeppelins, and she writes about Zeppelins. She about getting up, so and she had this... two major breakdowns, and yes. in, in between breakdowns, or like lockdowns, yes. she kind of got out of bed and the Zeppelins were going That's over That's right, head. and yeah. she, she was a bit excited by a Zeppelin, as many people were, and there were, there were all of these strange mythologies about this sleek rather beautiful, strangely beautiful object floating into view and then bombing civilians. And one of the mythologies was that these were driven mm. by women because only women would They were be, lighter. They, women were lighter, women were cowardly. A woman wouldn't thrust a bayonet in you, but they might <coughs> drop bombs on civilians. And this kind of detail, and again, Sophie's book is full of these kinds of details. These are the kinds of details that give you the, um, the internal experience of an encounter of the historical. So we know that 20 million people died in World War I and another 20 million were mutilated or damaged. Um, and the, those are enormous figures, but in my book I decided I would have one amputee because amputation was the most mm. common surgery on the front. It was the easiest way to deal with men who'd had their legs blown up or you know, a damaged arm. They just chopped it off. But, but the, it's that precious specificity of entering into the lives of characters 
that, that make it different to writing history. It's mm -hmm. not the same as saying, ah, oh, but 20 million people, you know, yeah. were mutilated. But, but, and, and, one, and one of the details that those unusual details, like, such as you're describing, when it was when Leonard Wolf wrote about his brother's deaths, that he, two of his brothers died on the Somme. And well, I was reading a letter and they had their fox terrier with them. They had taken their fox terrier to the trenches. They had, um, they, they would grow vegetables, they tried to grow vegetables in the trenches. They had a breakfast of, breakfast of broad beans they had grown the day that they ran onto in the field and got blown up. And they were officer class, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And the normal soldiers couldn't bring their pets to the trenches. Oh right. Okay. And um, one, well, actually, one of the brothers mm. did survive, and he was still talking about how he thought the dog had got away, and I was fairly sure the dog hadn't got away. But <coughs> Leonard Wolf was also obsessed with animals, and and um, it's something I've been always been interested in is not just not just humans at the centre of work, mm. but kind of yes. a, of a novel, not um, but. Mm animals and mm. trees and, the, and not that there's a lot of space for that in the novel, but mm. I would follow the story of particular animals that mm. had these kind of little historical moments as well. There's mm. Both of the books move between, they do, as you say, and I love that phrase, Gail. Well, you write about mules, sorry, I'm yes, speaking the about... Mules, yes, the mules, the precious specificity. So there's this beautiful um, dance in both of the books between the micro, but then there will be the macro, like just these very sort of delicate touches. I wanted to talk a bit about place in both of the books as well because it felt to me that, you know, there are very specific locations in both books. They sort of have these, these sort of pinpointed spots. So just thinking particularly about um, Thessalonica and Sri Lanka, both of these places felt they have had quite malleable histories, shall we say, which, you know, could be colonial, could be contested, could be occupied, possessed. They're places that have been in play in different ways. And I wondered if that changed your sense of the potential of the narrative that you could imagine for their landscape. Can I bring that one to you, first of all, mm. Gail? Uh, well, Salonika is the second great city of the Ottoman Empire um, after Istanbul. And, in fact, it's where Ataturk was born. So, you know, it was very much a kind of Turkish city. But in Salonika, uh, there are 500 years of Jewish, Greek Orthodox and um, Islamic culture coexisting. It's a very unusual place with a lot of monuments to each of the faiths. And also, um, and I was talking about this with David Malouf, who was the only person I came across who was as excited about Salonika <laughs> as I was. <laughs> And one of the things we both were sort of honed in on was that Ladino was spoken in Salonika. Ladino is a language that, with the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, the Jews that were expelled from Spain had a home, were given a home in Salonika and protected. So they carried this Spanish Hebraic language with them. And right up until um, the First World War, and then, of course, the Jewish population was destroyed in the Second World War. But those spaces of layering, to me, those cities, mm. especially port cities, um, Salonika, mm. was the, the port for the Eastern Front. Everyone knows about the Western Front and France and Belgium, but the Eastern Front had all the colonials there. So the, the colonial um, men from 
Vietnam, who had, which had been colonized by France, or you know, Senegal, or you know, all of these soldiers from many spaces were in Salonika, and then this great city burns down in the middle of the war. And it's not, it, I didn't think, oh, two great catastrophes in one space, mm -hmm. a war and a burning city. Uh, it, it's, what I wanted was the encounter with catastrophe in a very, as you say, sort of minute scale. Mm. So there's burning, there's a burning city and the spectacle of the burning city, but there's a lot of ash and smoke and smoke entering people's bodies. Uh, there are, you know, there's the huge machinery of war and then there are mosquitoes. Yes. Um, because there was malaria on the Eastern Front and more soldiers died of malaria than in the trenches in certain years. So that, that sense, and this is again, I think, what, what novelis, novelists are quite interested in, is the ethics of scale, how, how you read history against tiny, ordinary lives with sometimes boring things happening or ordinary forms of suffering like getting a virus or malaria. Mm, mm, mm. I love, there's an amazing um, conversation that moves from the malaria. We know it doesn't happen in Salonika burning but it certainly does in the devastating fever. The Spanish influenza pandemic comes. Well and the relationship they, between war and virus. That's is, right. Um, and then yeah. that leads yeah. us into the pandemic and you know there's an extraordinary mm. kind of trail to follow mm. there. Just staying with place for a moment, Sophie Leonard is um, Leonard is an active part of one incursion into Ceylon in as much as he's there as an administrator for the British government. And part of his journey in the novel and as it was in his life is his sort of understanding of what it meant to be a cog in that machine and yeah. what that machine was yeah, doing. He was, um, yeah, there are two things I was thinking of when you asked the question at the beginning just before, but about um, one night... Sri Lanka is a colonial space, mm -hmm. and my the way I was accessing it was um, writing about it as a colonial colonized space, and from the from the point of view of a coloniser, and also when I spent that long period of time there, um, it was just after the tsunami, mm -hmm. so that was a period in which um, the landscape and the whole culture was under a, another a different kind of pressure, and um, both those things actually inform. Mm. That that sense of it as a as a under attack, if you like, and um, quite permeable as yeah. well. Something that's you know not as not a well not an as, island, literally not a set landscape yep. in a way. Mm. But um, mm. with Leonard, he was quite an um, he was a real critic of of colonialism and wrote a lot of books you know against imperialism. However, he was also a very enthusiastic colonial administrator when he first started. He was like 26 or 27. He was you know given the north. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean and you know was doing stuff and when he didn't really know and he writes about this but the not always knowing what he was doing didn't stop him being quite authoritarian, as indeed he was during his whole life. And that does complicate him. He is a bit of a, a know-it-all. Mm. And it was only really towards the end of his life um, when he went back to Sri Lanka in the 60s as a bit of a, a rock star. But also people were, because he was a significant historical figure when he went back in the 60s. However, there were people who were also very critical mm. of both 
the, um, the administration, the English administration's role, but also his um, behaviour in particular. And the, I think he's approached somewhere by a man who um, he had whipped. No, he hadn't whipped. But um, people believed he'd whipped this man in the street who was actually a lawyer, was a Salonese lawyer, and he was saying, that is not true, I did not treat people like this. But then there were other lists of complaints mm. which, which were true and he was reconfronted by that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, hindsight is a great thing and I think we all can probably think about things we would do much better than we did when we were young <laughs> and kind of say, this is wrong, but it doesn't undo... The doing <laughs> your, of them. Yeah, the, the doing of them. And um, it's one of the reasons why writing the book became so complicated, I just managed to overcomplicate it every turn, basically, um, was because I went into it studying post-colonialism at university, I mean, as a master's, which I never finished. Um, and then I realised, but I'm a coloniser. I'm, you know, I'm descended from, you know, Scottish immigrants who came in the 1850s and were actually land property developers... Um, I was, during the pandemic, I was living in Mount Macedon, which is an incredibly colonised space. It's got amazing English trees and the, the whole kind of landscape is there's, there's some attempt to kind of transform it. And that was just very useful for me to connect with the fact that I think Australians feel like they have been colonised by the English and all the kind of, you know, the current debates about republicanism make that clear. But that does not mean that we were not also colonisers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I think that stopped me being a bit quite so judgy of Leonard, that understanding that I was not separate from that Mm. system, that I was, in a sense, part of that system. And at the same time as I was finishing the book, the family in in Queensland who'd been sent to Christmas Island, the the, um, Tamil family... Mm. And the, the, the way that they were being treated for years by the Australian government, that was all in my head as well as I was writing it, that, that Sri Lanka has continued to be um, well, incredibly contested and, and traumatised, a bit like Poland or, mm. you know, any, any mm. number of nations that find themselves well, one of the regularly really remade. Beautiful intersections between this devastating fever and Salonika burning is the idea of witness. Um, in different ways, these two books are witnessing the witnesses. Um, but the layers of witness, I want to start with this devastating fever. The layers of witness in this devastating fever are extraordinary because you invite us, Sophie, into the writing of a book called This Devastating Fever by one of your characters, Alice Fox. So we witness not only her research and her thinking and her living, but we also witness her interactions with imaginary Leonard and Ghost Virginia. Um, And imaginary Leonard and Ghost Virginia are witnessing their own immortalities in a way. Well, that's where I could fictionalise them, basically. (laughs) But, of course, they're two of the most professional witnesses of their particular pieces of the 20th century as well. Virginia through, you know, not just that sort of exquisite lens of her work, but all the diaries, all the letters that she left. Leonard, not only in how he witnessed Virginia's life, but... You know, the huge role he played, um, particularly between the wars and around the setup of the League of Nations. He has yep. a really interesting mm-hmm. witnessing role. So let's yeah. just sit with Leonard a little longer. How did the position of witness allow him to live? Who did it let him be? Well, I, I know that I found um, 
one point when I was despairing of writing the novel, so I was not writing the novel, I was doing something else, but um, I was living in the States um, in 2015, 2016, so I was there for the Trump election, and I was still reading books by and about Leonard because I couldn't let go of the project and I was just, I read one of his, a book he wrote in the 1930s called Quack Quack, which was about the rise of fascism and my God, Trump and Mussolini, almost word for word. Mm. Like it was not not Hitler, I mean people talk about him and Hitler, but no, the, the Mussolini kind of performance, mm. the nationalists, that particular kind of form of nationalism was is shocking, and I just it, that kind of almost reconnected me to him. I thought mm. he's always he's always there, mm. Mm. making mm. observations. And mm. one of the things that we have, Virginia was an anti-Semitic person. England was an anti-Semitic country. He was a Jewish man, so he was an outsider, and that gave him some sense of witnessing. Uh, the, the kind of, and so he was talking about things are really bad in Germany. I do believe the government should have a stronger position on Germany and I think it's Harold Nicholson was talking about, I do like Leonard, but he's carrying on about the Jewish problem and we, we can't, you know, it's hard to talk in front of him because he gets, he doesn't say he gets so uptight about it, but he effectively says he gets so uptight about it. And um, I know that towards the end of his life, Leonard was asked about how could he be friends and publish T.S. Eliot because T.S. Eliot was so anti-Semitic. And he just said, but all the English are anti-Semitic. Mm. <laughs> but I do think that that gave him a sense of being... Because he, he was slightly dismissed. So the mm. fact that he, he was written about as... Virginia's carer, despite his kind of quite important political role, was partly because he was also, he was being marginalised in the way that women are often mm -hmm. marginalised because he was a Jewish mm -hmm. man. Staying with um, the idea of witnessing um, and thinking about the structure of Salonika Burningale, it, it sort of passes the job of witnessing between the four characters mm -hmm. as you see the fire and various other events, their perceptions of and their reactions to it. And also just the, the lives that are being lived with whatever sense of normality there can be. I wondered in, in telling those four stories, was there a particular power for you in, in witnessing the, these witnesses? And I was thinking about that in the context of the way the sort of speed and the mechanics of witnessing have changed so much now. You know, it's we live in a much more performative world. People are you know, sharing their observations in different ways all of the time. Just those four four single dot points of perception, how it was working with that sense and scale of witnessing of these massive events. Mm -hmm. uh, gosh. I wanted there to be a sort of modesty to the lives. Uh, so they're not... These are not famous people at this point in any way. Mm. Um, Grace was unusual because she was a surgeon and had a certain authority. But she had nine brothers, and her mother hated her. <laughs> she was the only daughter. Her mother told her that she should have been strangled at birth. And the only frat fragment of hers is called strangled at birth. So she had this obsession with this idea of being an unwanted child. So that these are people who are already complex, precarious, perhaps damaged, as, you know, we, none of us have a, a sort of 
lucid witness of our own history. We, are all, we all come with our anxieties and our baggage and whatever. Uh, so uh, so I, I was fortunate in as much as I located these four very interesting people. Miles um, Franklin, all of these people, so these four um, historical figures, were all repatriated with malaria. So they all succumbed to malaria. And the worst case was Miles Franklin, who suffered terribly with her malaria, in part because she had an injection that made her lame for a while, and she was very, very ill, critically ill. And it, complete, it seems to have completely destroyed her confidence. And she was someone who had been working in the feminist movement in Chicago for the nine years previous. She you know, had a sort of authority as a feminist activist and a journalist. Um, she comes to the front. She cannot cope. She's trying to write um, journalistic pieces for newspapers in Australia about our brave boys, but her own physical suffering gets in the way, and she really can't cope, and she leaves as soon as she can. She breaks her contract and returns to England, but she still has recurrent malaria. So I wanted there to be a sense of um, witness that wasn't secure, that was in part uncomprehending. And actually, when I've just been rereading Sophie's book, uh, it's, it, it, it's a, one of those books that you can mm. reread and get more each time. I was very struck by this issue of, of women's status and women's roles because the 1913, the year before the war broke out, was the big year of suffragette activism. It was when suffragettes were, were invented the letter bomb, mm. for example. And it was when suffragettes were being force-fed in prison. So the woman who runs onto the race course mm. at the King's Derby in Epsom trying to put a suffragette banner over the head of the horse of the king. And this is always described as a um, suicide. She was trampled, of course, by the horse. That suffragette had been subjected to 49 force feedings in Holloway Prison. So, so the, the treatment of women was also traumatizing, and we can't assume a sort of lucid, transparent witness for anyone. Yeah, Virginia in was force-fed as well. And, no, that, and yeah. that's, that's what I'm saying, that reading about you know, Virginia's force-feeding. This was sort of the way you treated uh, women who weren't coping um, or women who were perversely beyond the law, like the suffragettes. They were force-fed in jail. Um, and I think those kinds of... That, that kind of historical moment, like you, I'm fascinated mm. by modernism and by the extraordinary um, innovations in representation itself. It's 1895 when film was invented. Mm. So it's, it's, it's very recent. Something like cinema is a very recent technology. Um, and it goes alongside these incredible social repressions, especially in the UK with Jews and women. Mm. Yeah. Well, and in the case of Virginia, it was, it was about how you treat people with mental health problems. So... Yeah. young men, because her brother, her brother who died actually, but he, he had um, some mm. was issues. I don't know what his issues were. He died too young for us to really mm. know what his issues were. But his, he was told that he should, you know, ride horses more and be more social and mm. perhaps go and study and get out of his head. And Virginia and women with her, her condition, which was never really diagnosed, was told she had to stay in mm. bed drink milk, 
put on weight and not read and not talk to people. Mm. So she was told, forced mm. to remove herself from mm. the world. Mm. And that if she wasn't unbalanced before... <laughs> <laughs> that, Would have that done ha- the job. <laughs> ..that happening to you on a regular basis. Yeah. And so mm. a, very, a very similar conditions that the treatments were totally, totally different. Mm. I just mm. want to um, come to structure in this devastating fever because one of the things... Um, that I love, which which is a beautiful sort of counterpoint to the the passing around the quartet in Salonica Burning is the book, Sophie's book just travels everywhere in time and space. I love it. It, it moves so fluidly and so rapidly between different eras and different people. There's a gorgeous um, moment, one of the things that bringing Alice, the, the author, into the book allows you to do is bring Melbourne into the book in the lockdowns. One of my favourite parts of the book is when Alice, and many of us will have had this experience, is having a, a Zoom conversation in her car because that's where she can be on her own and be quiet enough to do it. And Leonard opens the door of the car and gets in to have a chat with her, which I just think is magical. But there's, there was a, a, a fantastic um, piece by Gurmit Kaur in um, the Sydney Review of Books where she talked about the way you collapse time yeah. in this devastating fever. I loved that review too. I, it f- was I felt like I learned something about my work <laughs> by reading um, her review. <laughs> but I think it, it felt to me, you know, she talks <laughs> about, in, in this particular review, she talks about Janine Leanne's uh, Wiradjuri word, Guwayu, which means still and yet for, for all times, which is like an every when. This feels like a really important concept or a sort of possibility, particularly in Australia. And I, I wanted to talk about for you the importance or the power in being able to play with chronological shape of story. At I the have moment. stopped believing. <laughs> Stop believing in time as a concept. I mean, obviously, <laughs> time is we'll a concept. We'll be talking for another three hours. I'm sorry if but, you had plans. <laughs> It stopped being uh, particularly relevant. I, I certainly don't think of things as linear, mm. and I would actually relate that to some of my personal experiences of, of grief. And COVID is a time of grief, but also um, my stepdad's early. Well, I lost both my fathers died very close to each other, and what you, grief teaches you is that things are not. You might feel totally fine one day or not even be that upset and then a year later find yourself collapsing mm. in a heap because, you know, a Rod Stewart song has come on the radio, for example, <laughs> and, and, your, and your dad liked Maggie May. Mm. Um, and just that kind of... Mm. The, my personal... Ex- and also because my dad, who died, was diagnosed with dementia when he was in his 50s, late 50s, my age, and now, and um, that break... But he continued to be him. And so there was something about the way fragmented thinking and collapsing kind of brain still made sense to me if I stopped trying to put a narrative mm. construct on it. Mm. So he'd be picking from bits of his childhood and particular distresses or whatever. And that experience did totally change how I just even thought. But I didn't consciously try and explore any... I mean, I wrote all the Alice Fox stuff in a fugue state. I cannot remember writing it, barely. I mean, it was like three months during lockdown in very cold weather in bed with a cat on my lap and a computer on my lap. So I I really... It it did just kind of happen. When I think about 
the lockdown in Melbourne, for the rest of my life, I will think about Leonard Wolf getting into a car and interrupting <laughs> you know, someone's the Zoom, Zoom in, call. In the, there, there was a, I, I used to do Zoom calls in the car. Leonard Wolf did not get in the car and join me. But I was actually, I was having the, the idea that the, a real life experience that informed that, that kind of sequence was I was talking to George Megalogenis because I had to um, do some event with him and all the COVID stuff was <laughs> happening and he was... He, he, he was kind of making pronouncements. He was going, first, first Australia will go, then China, and then this is going to happen, <laughs> and uh, Trump, there'll be a vaccine, and Trump will... He was kind of making these sort of pre- predictions, and it was a kind of an insane conversation that we were both having with each other because we were trying to make sense of this mm-hmm. massive global thing, mm-hmm. but sitting in... I was sitting in a car, I don't know where he was, <laughs> and kind of this voice coming out of the... Um, <laughs> I did tell him he had a kind of little, little role in the book, but he... Said he probably wouldn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, given that we're we're within uh, we're within sight of the finish line, um, we've been circling around. I think uh, in this conversation, the description of the conversation in the program notes, which was about artists at turning points. So there's a couple of ways I want to flip this really quickly uh, before we finish. And first of all, many of the characters in both of these books are still stepping into their artistic selves. We're not with them, you know, we're not with Stanley when he has become the great painter. We're not with Grace when she is doing all her work. Or even, you know, with Leonard and Virginia. Leonard was never a great artist. Um, I wondered in thinking about uh, epiphanies in the story and sort of turning points for the artists, how did that sense of, of people walking towards their future, people walking towards their artistic selves, how did that help you find the characters in Salonika Burning in particular, Gail, that these were not people at the height of their powers but starting to work out who they were? I, th- I think for me it was a particular idea of art. So my novel begins with three pages of omniscience before it moves into the characters and one of the... and with two acts of distant anaestheticised witness. One is soldiers standing on a hill mm. looking at the city of Salonika burning and thinking, wow, this is exciting. That, that terribly, that shameful and perhaps shameless issue of ethics when we find something devastating, beautiful, or some catastrophe looks beautiful. It's got that, and then it, it tells a historical moment, which is a true one, where the war artist, there was a, an embedded war artist... Um, goes up in a hot air balloon to paint burning Salonika the next day and and he paints in pastels and it looks quite beautiful. And it is all about that um, uh, estranged witness that can can aestheticise and therefore release itself from ethical involvement. So I wanted to keep a focus on the idea that each of these four people would evolve, if you were, an ethical understanding and that this is what art makes, helps us to think mm-hmm. through. Um, this is what, you know, having that kind of collapse of time enables us to think about perspective differently or about what our responsibilities towards suffering others are. And, and, and even with the big issues like Freud, I mean, before the war we had the theory of the libido, the mm. libidinal, you know, affirming drive to sex and to fun. After the war, he's dealing with trauma patients and he comes up with the thanatos, the death drive, 
perhaps there's another kind of drive of destruction and darkness. To, so, so, so many people, I think, are changed by catastrophe and by the big events of history. But my sense is that art in even small gestures, like a letter or telling a story to a friend, is the way to reposition and reclaim some sense of the, the ethically responding self in the mass of history if that makes sense. It makes beautiful sense. It leads me perfectly to what is going to be the last question for Sophie Cunningham, who will only have three minutes to answer it, um, which is the flip side of this idea about artists at turning points. I think we need to talk about is both of you as extraordinary artistic figures at the height of your powers now working. Can't you um, just talk about that, Ashley? Well, can you surely really quickly, can't expect three us minutes, to comment three minutes. on that? Um, but also the meaning to be made by writing about and writing in spite of catastrophe, as one of the reviews of this devastating fever put it so succinctly. And I wanted to ask you, Sophie, about it responds to what Gail has just said, but your sense of the role of the writer, the chronicler, the witness, particularly at the moment. Um, I have a complicated... I think it is what writers have to do and it certainly motivates me and it's one of the reasons why I write a lot about trees and forests and kind of environmental issues. Um, but at the moment, I also feel fairly... Um, I've been working on a book about trees and I sort of had to stop for a while because, um, well, the news isn't good. It's very, very bad. And I didn't really want to write a book that was... Until I can write about something in a way where I feel I have some... Well, hope, hope is a very fraught word, but can offer something constructive rather than just gloom. Mm. I don't necessarily know how to write about something. So I'm feeling quite challenged and I don't know that I believe... Books change me and I write because I feel I have no choice. I don't know if books change things. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do it more because it's my way of, of processing what's happening and climate change, systems collapse, all the things that the world is enduring and is, it's going to get worse in, in my view. This is how I process it and I don't know whether that also... I don't know where that leaves the readers of that work, mm. but you do have to consider the readers of that work because there's, it's not just... You can't just go, blah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, I, it... And it also takes years to write a book. Mm. And by the time I have finished my book about trees, we will have lost several... I mean, a lot of... A lot will have happened. Like, it, urgent... Urgent action is needed and writing is not the same as urgent action and I find that sort of stressful really that tension between the the need to act now and my personal desire to write versus the fact that books the publishing industry all that is a kind of a bit of a slow machine mm. so it does actually um I don't quite know what to, how to, even how to answer that because I get quite stressed by the whole question of it. Having stressed one author, yes. um, I'm now going to abandon her and all yes. of you. Um, look, I really could talk to these two for days. Um, it's always a pleasure and a privilege to talk with authors about their books when you love the books, particularly when the two books talk to each other as well, which these two do quite beautifully. We have come to the end of our time together this morning. My apologies for leaving no time for you. It was selfish of me. Um, but I do hope you will keep talking with both Sophie and Gail through their work, through these two amazing books, and as I said, in person in the signing queue 
after this. Thank you all for being part of the exchange this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.